This morning we were in Acts chapter 13 and the very last verse of that chapter tells us that the disciples were filled with joy and with the Holy Spirit. It's quite amazing when you think of what they just went through. Uh, There was blessing, but there was conflict. And that would be the pattern of Paul's ministry. Uh, He would be on the mountaintops, in a sense, and down in the valleys much of the time. Uh, He would be met with with rejoicing or, or those who were rejoicing in what he said and those who were grumbling and complaining and even opposing in every way what he said. So they went through a lot, and yet it says they were filled with joy and with the Holy Spirit. I'd like you to turn over to the book of Philippians for a moment and look at Paul talking to the Philippians about this subject of joy. Philippians chapter 3. In verse 1, he says, Finally, my brethren, rejoice in the Lord. And then if you look over in chapter 4, verse 4, he says again, Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say, rejoice. It's a joyful letter, the book of Philippians, because it was written by a truly joyful man, the Apostle Paul. When he first came to the city of Philippi and preached the gospel, he and Silas were arrested. They were mercilessly beaten with rods, thrown into prison. And then in chapter 16 of the book of Acts, it says at midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns. And the prisoners were listening to them. I can't imagine what they thought. Who are these nuts? Who are these crazy men singing praises to God? They've just been beaten with rods. Now they're in jail, in chains. Well, the Apostle Paul's example both shames us and attracts us, doesn't it? We want to be like him in this. Uh, We wouldn't want to be in the same trials he went through. But I hope that we would certainly desire the joy he possessed in the midst of trials. Whether we suffer trials as he did uh, may not be the case, but we'll all suffer trials. In the book of Job, he tells us that as as the sparks fly upwards, so man is born to trouble. And yet, you notice in both of these verses, we have a command to rejoice. Rejoice in the Lord. It's a command. It's interesting, as one commentator pointed out, that his admonitions in Philippians to rejoice are always in the context of adverse circumstances, trials, and difficulties that might rob them of their joy. In chapter 3, he says, Finally, my brethren, rejoice in the Lord. For me to write the same things to you is not tedious, but for you it is safe. And then he immediately says, Beware of dogs. (laughs) Beware of evil workers. Beware of the mutilation. 
And he's not talking about literal dogs. He's talking about men. Men who were like vicious dogs. Remember, he told the Ephesian church, he says, I know that after my departure, savage wolves will come in, not sparing the flock. He was speaking about false teachers. And these particular false teachers are the ones I mentioned in this morning's message to the church in Galatia. Uh, these false teachers would come in distorting the gospel and offering to the people another gospel. And so that's a danger they faced. And yet he said they could rejoice. In fact, he commands them to rejoice. Uh, when he's uh, speaking here in chapter 4, verse 4, he was talking about these two women who were fighting in the church. Now, there's nothing like fightings in the church that can rob us of our joy. And yet he commands them there to rejoice. And again, I say rejoice. And then he goes on to speak of being, being anxious for nothing. But in prayer and supplication, make your request known to the Lord. So he's a realist in that he knows we'll face anxiety. We'll face things that will... Uh, rob us of joy, rob us of our peace. And yet he commands us to rejoice. Uh, Thomas Watson uh, said that spiritual joy is a sweet and delightful passion arising from the apprehension and feeling of some good whereby the soul is supported under present troubles and fenced against future fear. I like that. I think that's a wonderful definition, especially as it applies to this spiritual joy that he's talking about. Now, Paul, when he was writing this letter to the Philippians, he was again in prison, this time in Rome. And uh, even while he was in prison, there were certain men out there who claimed to be followers of Christ. And they were preaching Christ out of envy, just like those uh, the Jews were envious of Paul. There were even professing Christians that were envious of him in some way. And he tells them they are to rejoice. In chapter 1, verse 18, he says uh, uh, that he rejoices that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is preached, and in this I will rejoice. One commentator noted that this is not an admonition to some kind of superficial cheerfulness that closes its eyes to surrounding circumstances. Now, that's the kind of joy that the world offers. He'll tell you, don't worry, just be happy. Well, the Paul wasn't saying that. Uh, in fact, the commentator goes on to say, rather, the apostle is inculcating a positive Christian attitude of joy that finds outward expression in their lives and that realistically takes into account adverse circumstances, trials, and pressures through which the Philippians were called to pass. Uh, the Bible is a realistic book. It understands that we have troubles in this life. It understands that we face many hardships. And yet, through those, we can rejoice in the Lord. Now, again, I want to point out uh, that it is a command. It's not an option. Uh, it's a duty. And we shouldn't think of it as something that we either have or we don't have. Kind of like love. Well, people say you're either in love or you're not in love. Well, that's the world's thinking of love. But even love is a command, isn't it? Now, it involves feelings, but it's something that we're commanded to have and commanded to express. 
It's a responsibility. And we have a responsibility likewise to rejoice. Martin Lloyd-Jones said, The tendency is always to think of joy as some subjective state or condition. And of course, ultimately it is. And yet, the very fact that Paul commands us or calls us to rejoice is proof positive that it is not something that we experience in a purely passive or subjective manner. Like some days you just wake up and you're in a good mood. Or maybe uh, some situation or circumstance just kind of puts you in a good mood. You didn't put yourself in that mood. You just were put in that mood. Sometimes it might be the weather, the sunshine. And those are physical realities that can affect our moods and can affect our joy. But he's talking about a joy that whether it's sunshiny or raining, we can have it in our lives. Um, the Lord says in, in Psalm 100, Bless the Lord, O my soul. Bless His holy name. We're to enter into His gates with thanksgiving and into His courts with praise. And also, it's not something that we can just put on, like putting on a happy face. And some people can do that. And they can do it quite well. They can be miserable. They can be angry. They can, but they can just put on a happy face. And we know that the Bible teaches that we're to be joyful. uh, And they really ought to be the most, the happiest people in the world. And yet we know this isn't the case. Uh, There even was and still are those who think that Christians are to be the very opposite. That Christians aren't to be happy at all or to express that. That they're to be somber and they're to be sullen. Uh, Sometimes the Puritans have been caricatured this way. That they were just... Uh, unhappy people, and they were just so concerned that someone somewhere in the world might be happy. (laughs) They were unhappy, and they didn't want anybody to be happy. But that's not really the case. Charles Spurgeon spoke of certain men who walked about with their heads bowed down, saying, we're going to die. We're going to die. We're going to die. (laughs) Well, that shouldn't be your attitude either. Uh, That's not the teaching of the Bible. But recognizing that and reacting against that, some Christians have adopted a happy composure. They want to smile. They're determined to smile continuously and always have a cheerful response to everything. Well, Christians don't always have to smile. And there's a difference between joyfulness and smiling. There's a time and a place, the Bible says, for weeping. There's a time to rejoice and there's a time to weep. Now, it even teaches us that it's possible to be sorrowful and yet always rejoicing. That seems like a contradiction, doesn't it? It's not actually a contradiction, but it is something that's hard to understand how it can exist at the same time. Uh, But it is possible, but it's not possible to be sorrowful and yet always smiling, is it? Paul could say we're sorrowful but yet always rejoicing, uh, poor but making many rich. He said to the Corinthians, uh, we who are in this tent groan, being burdened, uh, not because we want to be unclothed, but further clothed. So there's a time and a place where Christians feel that way, that they're burdened, and yet they can still rejoice. They can still be glad in the Lord. It's also, it's not something that can be worked up by 
aiming directly at the emotions. And we recognize that praise and rejoicing must not only proceed from our lips, but from our hearts. And so they try to work it up. Some churches and some pastors try to work it up by addressing the emotions to get them in a happy state. Sometimes a church service, sometimes a church service uh, does this in their religious gatherings. They, they might have a song leader. Um, they always have someone who's uh, bright and cheerful. That's the kind you want. Uh, they might even have a worship team. Uh, and sometimes it appears that their only goal is to get the congregation into a happy mood. And uh, they'll smile cheerfully and they'll say, oh, come on, you're not singing loud enough. Let's sing louder and just pump them up. And pretty soon they're all singing and smiling. They don't really know why, but they're doing it. Um, uh, and we need to be careful of that. Even music itself can uh, be a very powerful and yet a manipulating thing. We don't want to we want to stay away from from that kind of thing. But uh, we we also need to understand that a, when we talk about putting on joy or putting on this happy face, that a put on joy or happiness isn't the real thing. And it's usually detectable and it's almost always detestable. It doesn't really impress anyone. We may fool people here and there, but it's it's not real. Even the Beatles back in the 60s wrote the song Eleanor Rigby, uh, that she's uh, wearing a face that she keeps in a jar by the door. Who is it for? All the lonely people. And when she comes to the door to answer it, she's got to put on her happy face because people need that. Uh, there's even a commercial out right now where an older woman says, you know, I just love helping people out. And sometimes just a piece of pie will bring sunshine back into their life. Well, that's not what we're talking about here either. Just that kind of sunshine, that kind of thing that just makes you smile for a little bit. Martin Lloyd-Jones said, I don't know what your experience is, but speaking for myself, the most depressing people I think I've ever met are those who are trying to give the impression that they're always cheerful and happy. Well, we don't want that. Well, what does it mean then to be, uh, to be happy and to rejoice in the Lord? Well, notice that uh, something new has been added to the dimension of rejoicing. Here Paul says they're to rejoice in the Lord. Chapter 3, verse 1. Rejoice in the Lord. Now, it's not another kind of rejoicing than he's already mentioned in this epistle. Uh, but uh, what he means is to rejoice in the Lord it's a theological consideration. Uh, one man argues that the whole passage offers a theological justification for rejoicing. And I'm sure we could pick that out. But what he's saying is when, when Paul says to rejoice in the Lord, he's reminding them that they have a reason to rejoice. It's in the Lord. And by that, he's referring to the Lord Jesus Christ. And so to rejoice in the Lord means to rejoice in him, in his person and in his work. And not just some nebulous idea of Jesus, but actually, who was he? And what did he do that would cause us to rejoice, that would flood our minds and our hearts with this sense of joy? Well, we must meditate on first who he is 
And then secondly, to meditate on what he has done. Who he is, well, Jesus is the Son of God. He wasn't just a man who came to this earth and taught some good things. That's many people's idea of Jesus. Even many, many professing Christians and churches believe that Jesus was just like another prophet or another good teacher. And that he came and he said some good things. No, Jesus was far more than that. He was the eternal Son of God. He came from heaven. There's no one here on earth that can say, I came from heaven. No, an angel could say he came from heaven, but uh, that's not any of us. But Jesus came as a man and said, I came from heaven. Now, that says a lot. He came from heaven, but he wasn't an angel either. He came from heaven as the eternal Son of God. He's always existed in the bosom of the Father. In the beginning, John tells us, was the Word. And he's speaking of Christ. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. So when Jesus came to this earth, He's the very Son of God. But He became a man. That's the incarnation. The Son of God became a man. John goes on to say in first in John chapter one, and the Word, the eternal Word of God, became flesh and dwelt among us. That's an amazing thought. That the eternal Son of God became a man and dwelt among us. This Jesus, of whom we've heard of all of our lives, was the very Son of God. He walked on this earth for thirty three years. As a man. But what did he do as a man? Well, he kept the law of God perfectly. That's our responsibility, you know, to keep God's law 100%. Perfectly. God doesn't grade on a curve here. He tells us, the soul that sinneth, it shall surely die. We're to obey his word perfectly. And yet no one on this earth has ever obeyed the Word of God perfectly, except one. And that was the eternal Son of God who became a man and dwelt among us, and He kept God's Word perfectly. Now, that's an astounding thought. And to even think and stop right there, that He came to this earth, that should be a cause of rejoicing or perhaps a cause of fear. Why would He come? Well, as I said, he came to keep God's law, but he also came to offer himself as a sacrifice for sin. God gave him a body that he might have a body which he could suffer and die for the sins of others. He came to be a sacrifice for sin, a substitute for sinners. The soul that sinneth it shall surely die. The wages of sin is death. And that's what we have to pay. Unless someone has paid it on our behalf. And that's what the Lord Jesus Christ did. He came to this earth to take our sins upon Himself and to suffer and die under the wrath of God. It wasn't just what men did to the Lord Jesus that He suffered. Yes, it was a physical suffering. It was pain 
the most intense pain you could imagine. But there was something else going on there. Not only were men punishing Christ unjustly, God in heaven was punishing him justly. Justly. That's his own son. Justly. He never did anything wrong. That's right. But he took our sin. When he became the sin bearer, God then punished him in our place. The sin bearer, Christ, took our sins upon himself. He died on the cross. The just for the unjust that he might bring us to God. That's the gospel. That's the good news of salvation. And it's good news, which means we can and we should rejoice in the Lord. In who He is and what He has done on our behalf. We rejoice in His person and in His work. And you say, well, that doesn't really solve my problems. It solves your biggest problem. It solves the biggest problem you've ever had, and that is being unreconciled to God under His condemnation. That's your biggest problem. It's my biggest problem. In fact, all of the problems we've ever suffered on this world pale in comparison to what we deserve and what we will suffer if we suffer under His wrath. And so, when we rest satisfied in Him and what He has done on our behalf, then we can have true, lasting joy. It's not an artificial joy that's simply pumped up by the emotions or, or brought on by changing circumstance. It's a true, spiritual joy rising up from these eternal realities that Jesus Christ, the Son of God, was sent to this earth to redeem me, to, to purchase me, to pay my debt. Wonderful hymn, It Is Well With My Soul. I love the last part. It says, Though Satan should buffet, though trials should come, let this blessed assurance control that Christ has regarded my helpless state, his state, and has shed his own blood for my soul. You see, that's the thing that's the most important thing. There's another hymn that says, My sin, oh, the bliss of this glorious thought. My sin, not in part, but in whole, was nailed to the cross, and I bear it no more. I'm sorry, that's just another stanza of the same hymn. But I bear it no more. Praise the Lord, oh, my soul. To know that your sins are forgiven that the burden of sin has been taken off of your back. And now you're free indeed to serve God and to, to love Him with all your heart and soul and strength. So it's by looking to Him. It's joy in the Lord. You see, when Paul and Barnabas were there in Antioch and and the they're undergoing persecution, being driven out of the city. They could have taken a very bitter stance and an angry stance. Look, they're all against us. But as Paul writes in the book of Romans, chapter 8, if God be for us, who can be against us? 
He that spared not His own Son, but delivered Him up for us all, how shall He not with Him also freely give us all things? God is for us. He sent His Son to die in our place. My sins have been forgiven. I've been restored to a right relationship with God. I've been adopted into His family. I'm a child of God. And John could say that uh, this thought that we are the children of God. What a wondrous thought. What a wondrous plan that God would make us His own dear children. Now, if we are to truly have Christian joy, we must hold loosely to every other source of joy. Because every other source of joy can be given and it can be taken away. God has given us all things richly to enjoy here on earth. And we can find great pleasure in things like the outdoors and the sunshine and good food. But those aren't the main source of our joy. And so we need to hold very loosely to those things. We need to examine our hearts. Am I looking to these things as the source of my joy? Or am I looking to Christ in who He is and what He has done for me? There's another hymn that says, When all my... When all around my soul gives way, He then is all my hope and stay. Because one day the things we have here on earth will be stripped from us. And you think about people that have built their homes and their empires to enjoy. Like the man Jesus spoke of, the the, the farmer who had... His barns filled and then he had a bumper crop and he said, what am I going to do? I'm going to tear down these barns. And I'm going to build bigger barns and then I'm going to store all my goods and say to my soul, soul, you have many goods laid up for many years. Take thy knees, eat, drink and be merry. And Jesus said, you fool. This night, your soul will be required of you. You can't take those things with you. They will be no comfort when you close your eyes in death. Make sure that your source of joy is not the things of this world, but in Jesus Christ. Rejoice in the Lord. And we must hold tenaciously to Him as our only source of joy, only source of true joy. This alone will protect us from discouraging circumstances that might rob us of our joy. In the book of Romans, again in chapter 8, Paul is speaking about Christians and themselves in particular as apostles. He says, we are counted as sheep for the slaughter. And that was literal. <laughs> he knew he was sitting in a, uh, uh, he was going to be going to Rome and he would have his head cut off one day. But he says, I'm persuaded that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. That's a reason to rejoice. Years ago, I spoke with a woman who was having some very, very difficult times with with depression and and a sense of just hopelessness and, and no nothing nothing in the world did she have to rejoice in. But she claimed to be a Christian. 
And so I said, so you have nothing to rejoice in? No, nothing. Nothing? I mean, didn't Christ come? Didn't Christ lay down his life for you? Isn't that something? And then she understood where I was going with that. And she says, yes, that's right. And he gave her some peace. And he gave her some hope. Because she had completely lost sight of where her true joy, her true hope was found. And that's in the Lord Jesus Christ. And also when Paul and Barnabas told those uh, Gentiles there in Acts chapter 13 that they have to continue in the grace of God, it's only, and Paul was only and always talking about the grace of God found in the Lord Jesus Christ. That's where we find it. And so we must hold tenaciously to Him as our only source of true joy. Let's pray. Gracious 